I'm Elliot Williams, and you're listening to Made to Fail. The episode you're about to hear focuses on the history of police brutality in America and the campaign strategies and systems that built and continue to fortify this brutality. In an effort to fully tell this story, this episode includes violent audio from police killings and racial slurs spoken by public officials. The content first occurs at roughly 50 seconds into the show, and then again at around the 10-minute mark. Those are protesters in Minneapolis chanting, Say His Name, George Floyd. The mayor of that city has imposed a curfew that starts tonight. On May 26th, people took to the streets of Minneapolis in masks to protest the killing of George Floyd, a 46-year-old local black man. The incident, caught on a bystander's cell phone camera, shows Derek Chauvin, a white police officer, kneeling on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. During this time, three other policemen look on while George Floyd pleads with the officer, repeatedly saying that he can't breathe and calling out for his mother. Cities across America erupted over the video, embodying the country's latent anger over police forces' killings of unarmed black men and women. In Minneapolis, it seemed that they just buried Philando Castile, who was fatally shot in 2016 by an officer during a routine traffic stop. And it seemed every state had its own story, intimately acquainted with the specific person's death at the hands of the police. There is also news tonight about the shooting death of Breonna Taylor in her own home in Louisville. The FBI is investigating a controversial police shooting at a Chicago transit station. Major outrage this morning after a behavioral therapist was shot by an officer after he held his hands in the air lying on the ground. As the protests over racist police violence continued state by state, police brutality marched on. Police officers were filmed destroying citizen aid stations, tear gassing, beating, shooting rubber bullets at protesters. Meanwhile, leaders of police unions were rallying around the officers who killed George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Rayshard Brooks. In Minneapolis, police use force against black people at seven times the rate of whites. And one in every 1,000 black men can be expected to be killed by police. That's two and a half times more likely than white Americans. These statistics are no coincidence. The killing of unarmed black men and women in the streets in their cars and in their homes, is not just the product of occasional racist bad apples. Instead, a well-built and well-funded system not only offers protection to racist police behavior, but encourages it. This system spans centuries and has a network that runs through all areas of city, state, and federal government. It has no deference to political party, gender, or religion. It's a system that still works just as it was originally intended to keep black people in America from ever feeling or being safe. You can't let what's happening happen. 
It's called dominate the streets. You can't. Hopefully, George is looking down right now and saying, "This is a great thing that's happening for our country. This is a great day for him. It's a great day for everybody." I'm Elliot Williams, and this is Made to Fail. Our nation has been gripped. Violent mobs, arsonists, looters, criminals, rioters. These are not acts of peaceful protest. We don't just need a new contract. We need a toll on black and brown Americans on full display. Today I have strongly recommended to every governor to deploy the National Guard in sufficient numbers that we dominate the streets. This was not the first time the citizens of Minnesota had taken to the streets to protest police brutality. Tonight, police in Minneapolis are bracing for protests after two officers were cleared in the fatal shooting of 24-year-old Jamar Clark. In 2015, two Minneapolis police officers shot and killed unarmed 24-year-old Jamar Clark. Protesters set up an 18-day encampment surrounding the grounds of Minneapolis's 4th police precinct. All this week, anger and frustration have surfaced in a Minneapolis neighborhood with a long record of racial grievances. Former Minneapolis Mayor Betsy Hodges was there. You know, my role as mayor through all of that was to make sure that everybody stayed as safe as possible, including the protesters. I decided, uh, yes, we're going to let the protests continue. There were a number of people who completely disagreed with that decision. Uh, not just police officers, all kinds of community members who thought we should just go in there. Why aren't we just getting people out of there? The police officers were, you know, standing outside of the precinct, protecting the precinct. They were not happy about it. But Mayor Hodges saw this reaction by the police as the product of a larger system, a larger history. The officers knew that they were busy doing what they'd been asked to do. And they'd been busy doing things that we collectively had not stopped them from doing. All of a sudden, we were criticizing them for doing what we had asked them to do. To understand what the mayor means when she says this, that police officers just think they're doing what we've always asked them to do, you have to first know the history that policing is rooted in. And as people have objected to that role of policing, we've tried to add layers of social work on top of it to make it okay. Uh, And police officers are not social workers. And asking them to behave like social workers is one of those things that makes us white people feel better uh, while also knowing it's doomed to fail and they're still going to be protecting our convenience and comfort. Policing has grown out of this idea of control. How do we use the law and authority to separate, discriminate, and hold down black communities? From before Reconstruction through the 20th century, the South developed into a legal system designed to protect white fear and anxiety, not protect law and order. Because policing is, uh, the culture is based on uh, slave patrols. This is Sonia Pruitt. She's the past chairwoman of the National Black Police Association. And she's now retired, but she was a police officer for 28 years. Back in the 1700s, 
probably earlier than that, but we're going to recognize the 1700s as the time when slave patrols were really uh, created in earnest. They were created, of course, to keep slaves, slaves, to make sure that they didn't work outside the lines, to make sure they didn't try to run away, to keep them under control. So it was just a way to oppress a people who were already oppressed. And that is how we first came to be actually policed in our black and brown bodies. In the southern states, policing was largely developed to enforce slavery and reinforce racism as the country developed during the Reconstruction. Emancipation was not the end of white brutality against blacks. And there have been all sorts of other influences along the way, but this basic idea that whiteness, that policing is designed to protect white people's convenience and comfort, uh, largely by not inconveniencing us and by making sure our property stays safe. How we police vulnerable communities. It has not gone away. I don't even think it's a secret. I think that people know when they become the, some people know when they become the police that that is how it is. I always say that in terms of systemic racism, the police departments are the law enforcement arm of that. It was calculated. A strategy to pit racial fears at the forefront of public policy. It was a strategy we are still seeing reverberations of today. African-Americans, we all have a story. And in my neighborhood, there were two officers. I can recall after I graduated from high school in college one summer, had a car. I was pulled over every day for seven straight days by these two officers. And we were pulled over, stretched out on on the front of the car. This is president of the NAACP, Derek Johnson. And anytime these two officers would uh, come around, most of us would try to disperse as fast as possible because they had a, a pattern of, of pulling people over and pat, pockets down if you had more than what they thought. Um, and so it was, it was problematic. President Johnson grew up in Detroit, and in this story, he gets away. The two police officers who were always terrorizing his community let him go. But the two officers was a real problem. What's ironic about that story, that was probably about seven years later, they murdered a guy on my block, Malice Green, on 23rd and Warren. They pulled them over and they, they choked them and killed them. That was, for many years, on their corner a memorial because people in the neighborhood knew Malice. Malice never bothered anybody. That's, that's me growing up. It's true. If you ask any Black American, many of us will have a story of some sort of police brutality, many of them recent. But what's at the bottom of all these stories? What else is at work here? While the origins of police as slave patrols should never be forgotten, to fully explain how modern policing is made to fail, we have to walk through the administrations and national shifts that created policing as it exists today. And to do that, we have to take you back to the 1960s and the birth of the Southern strategy. Our papers and our newsreels and, yes, our own observations tell us that immorality surrounds us as never before. We see violence in the streets, in our cities and suburbs, graft and corruption in the highest public offices to which we look for leadership. In your heart, you know he's right. Vote for Barry Goldwater. Maybe you've heard of the Southern strategy. That's when the Republican Party, in the wake of the Civil Rights Movement, 
decided to court Southern white voters by capitalizing on their racial fears. Republican presidential candidate Barry Goldwater first wielded this strategy in 1964, and Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan perfected it, turning the solidly Democratic South into a bastion of Republicanism, bringing Democrats and disaffected whites out of the Democratic Party and into the Republican Party. But it doesn't end with Nixon. It creeps back up with presidential candidate Ronald Reagan. Here's Reagan's campaign manager, Lee Atwater, explaining how it works. The next clip uses racial slurs, which was not surprising for the former campaign operative and Republican National Committee chairman. You start out in 1954 by saying nigger, nigger, nigger. By 1968, you can't say nigger, that hurts your backfire, so you say stuff like uh, force busing, states rights, and all that stuff. And you're getting so abstract now, you're talking about cutting taxes and all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things, and the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than white. But maybe you haven't heard of the suburban strategy. The suburban strategy refers to the emergence of a colorblind ideology in white middle-class suburbs that has also emerged. This strategy is more popular with Democrats. This ideology defends things like residential segregation and neighborhood schools as simply the natural outcomes of market forces and individual meritocracy rather than the unconstitutional products of discriminatory public policies. This stance is just as dangerous, given that we've just heard Lee Atwater explain that there's never been a race-blind fiscal policy. Over the years, conservatives have continued to use the Southern strategy, using racial stereotypes and fear-mongering to get elected or push their own agendas. This has had a direct impact on what America's police forces look like today. It was first used most effectively by President Nixon when, in June of 1971, he first declared a war on drugs. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. Nixon dramatically increased the size and presence of federal drug control agencies and pushed through such measures as mandatory sentencing and no-knock warrants. The war on drugs was the top-down, rigid approach to placate the fears of suburban white America, and in so doing, it entrenched the ugliest parts of the national legacy on policing hurting marginalized communities and creating a tiered application of the law. You may have heard of some of these policies, broken windows, stop and frisk. For too many years, the scales of criminal justice were tilted toward protecting rights of criminals. Those in charge forgot or just plain didn't care about protecting your rights, the rights of law-abiding citizens. The Reagan presidency marked the start of a long period of skyrocketing rates of incarceration, largely thanks to his huge expansion of this war on drugs. We're taking down the surrender flag that has flown over so many drug efforts. We're running up a battle flag. We can fight the drug problem and we can win. During his presidency, Ronald Reagan nearly doubled the prison population. This marked the start of a long period of skyrocketing rates of incarceration, which disproportionately imprisoned black Americans under the expansion of the drug war. 
The Southern strategy was used again most notably by supporters of George H.W. Bush for his 1988 presidential campaign against Michael Dukakis. Bush and Dukakis on crime. Bush supports the death penalty for first-degree murderers. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. This was some more of campaign advisor Lee Atwater's work, which highlighted the case of a black murderer named Willie Horton, who, while on a prison furlough, raped a white woman and assaulted her boyfriend. The Bush campaign used this case to portray his Democratic rival as insufficiently tough on crime. Weekend prison passes, Dukakis on crime. This tactic worked and helped Bush Sr. win the election of 1988. In a poll run after the election, one in every five voters said punishment of criminals was among the issues that mattered most, causing twice as many voters to cast their votes for Bush. As incarceration and policing grew in the 1980s, so did the racially coded rhetoric. More and more Americans were being put in jail with societal blinders to the real problems at the core of our legal system. And it continued into the 1990s. But this perspective on crime wasn't limited to only Republicans. With the election of President Clinton, the situation went from bad to worse. And therefore, it is a part of what I think ought to be our overall mission, which is to give our children a safe, wholesome, constructive upbringing. During his 1992 presidential campaign, Bill Clinton advocated for treatment instead of incarceration. But after his first few months in the White House, he reverted to the strategies of his Republican predecessors by continuing to escalate the drug war. Today the bickering stops, the era of excuses is over, the law-abiding citizens of our country have made their voices heard. Never again should Washington put politics and party above law and order. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. And the president has asked the FBI. During Clinton's presidency, a program was put in place that allowed America's police forces to get the Pentagon's hand-me-down weapons. All they had to do was pay the cost of shipping. Over several decades, what's called the 1033 program has shipped over $7.4 billion of Defense Department property to more than 8,000 law enforcement agencies. This has resulted in America's police forces being armed to the teeth. The legacies of these policies, from militarizing police departments, the shock and awe drug war tactics, the political fears of looking soft on crime, they became the standard the default. They stopped being initiatives and strategies and just became the way things are. And we're seeing more and more stories like George Floyd's every year. What I call the fake war on drugs. And here we are, and not a whole lot has changed, except we all actually saw the death of a Black man at the knees of a white police officer, which was clearly a murder. And that's part of when blackness becomes weaponized, that we've been socialized through social scripts to view blackness, particularly blackness and maleness together as an intersection, as being something that's dangerous, that is criminal prone, that is emotionally unstable, that is aggressive. This is professor of sociology, Dr. Rayshon Ray. He founded the Lab for Applied Social Science Research, where he's executive director. 
He and his colleagues have conducted 300 interviews with officers and 100 with civilians in 10 police departments in the Washington region and elsewhere around the country. Then you get in the courtroom and people don't think that police officers should be prosecuted civilly when it comes to financial culpability or criminally. The, the bar is set so high for an officer to be charged, prosecuted, and then convicted, because those are three different processes, to be convicted of killing someone is extremely high. And it's important for people to recognize that close to about half of all police killings in the United States, there are over a thousand people killed by the United States uh, every year, that in about half of those killings, their rule is unjustifiable. In the midst of police brutality allegations across the country, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to re-examine a much-criticized modern-day legal doctrine created by judges that has shielded police and other government officials from lawsuits over their conduct. It's called qualified immunity. The qualified immunity doctrine, as applied to police, initially asks two questions. Did police use excessive force? And if they did, should they have known that their conduct was illegal because it violated a clearly established prior court ruling that barred such conduct. The idea behind the doctrine was to protect police from frivolous lawsuits and allow some protection for mistakes that involve split-second judgments in tense and dangerous situations. The problem with qualified immunity isn't simply the fact that police officers aren't held financially liable. It's also the fact that qualified immunity is interpreted as a, a doctrine to prevent criminal prosecution. Everyone from the district attorney to jurors to judges view qualified immunity as extending to criminal court. But while qualified immunity is the better known legal shield for police, there's a lesser known reason that it's so difficult to hold police criminally accountable. And it's the one that proves the Supreme Court has been going by the Southern strategy playbook all along. Enter reasonable fear. A pair of Supreme Court decisions, Tennessee v. Garner and Graham v. Connor, set up a framework for determining when deadly force by police is to be considered reasonable. What these cases determined is that legally, what most matters in these shootings is whether police officers reasonably believed that their or others' lives were in danger, and not whether the shooting victim actually posed a threat. And that is a defense that goes over very, very well in the court of law that gives them justification because the assumption is that they had such a short period of time by which to react. That fear is justified in killing someone. We can't deny that on-the-spot decisions by police officers often happen in a very tense environment. The sticking point, however, is the extent to which that notion has dictated the law in this area. Because in a lot of states, an overwhelming number of states in the country, most states that have stand-your-ground laws now, that if a person feared for his or her life, they have the ability to take the law into their own hands. And if a civilian can do that, then police officers can definitely do it. And then, of course, when the victim is a black man, I mean, this plays into all of the social scripts and the cultural and racial tropes about what we think about black men. And if you've got a majority white jury, which you often do, and a judge who's white, which they often are, reasonable fear makes holding police criminally accountable nearly impossible. One of the things people have to realize is where this script comes from. 
This script literally comes from the Fraternal Order of Police, where they will tell police officers to say that they feel for their lives. The Fraternal Order of Police is one of the largest and most powerful police organizations in the United States, but it's certainly not the only one. I think unions are very important for representing their constituents, but Fraternal Order of Police unions have by far extended the bounds of their power. And they have started to literally obstruct justice. And we have to be very realistic about that. I am not Derek Chabon. We are restrained. Everybody's trying to shame us. We are the proud men and women who wear a shield on our chest and put ourselves in harm's way to protect our city. Democratic politicians have surrendered our streets and our institutions. The very first police union started as just that, unions. Officers were paid poorly, the work wasn't always fun, the job was demanding, the hours were long. But many police unions that exist today were formed as a reaction against public demands in the 60s and 70s for more civilian oversight of the police force. And in the early 60s, white racial anxiety helped to strengthen the positions of unions. The biggest challenge is always white resistance, and it takes various forms. Uh, In Minneapolis in particular, Uh, is the police union. But in Minneapolis, it's particularly pernicious, and the leadership they've chosen is particularly devoted to never changing anything about policing and taking it as an affront when attempts are made. Good evening, patriots. The mayor said uh, the president wasn't welcome, but the Police Federation of Minneapolis begs to differ. The Obama administration and the handcuffing and oppression of police was despicable. The the first thing President Trump did when he took office was turn that around, got rid of the Holder, Loretta Lynch regime, and decided to start taking, letting the cops do their job, put the handcuffs on the criminals instead of us. Police unions insist on respect and have sometimes humiliated mayors who displease them. Police chiefs struggle to fire even the worst performing police officers, those who have violent records, because police unions as they exist today are there at the ready to make sure those officers still have a job and walk free from what could otherwise be long prison sentences. In many cities, police unions are a political force to be reckoned with. Both Republicans and Democrats look forward to their endorsements and campaign donations. Often, the legislation police unions support tends to get passed and their candidates elected. They don't want want the police here when it's a Republican that stands up for the police. But if it's a Democrat, we get a different story, right? Minneapolis, Minneapolis, you got a rotten mayor, you got to change your mayor, you got a bad mayor. How can you thank this guy for everything he's done for law enforcement? Wonderful president. In fact, we are being held hostage by many uh, fraternal orders of police organizations where they feel as if they can operate with impunity in our communities. Here's NAACP president Derek Johnson again. That's not how a justice system should operate, especially when you have members within the agency who are not upholding their sworn duty to protect and serve. Eventually, George Floyd's family is going to get a large civil payout. And his family, the tax money they paid into Minneapolis, is going to be used to pay them back for the murder and dehumanization of their loved one. 
And it's important for people to recognize this because in a lot of cities like Minneapolis, a third of all general funds go to go to law enforcement. That's one out of every three dollars. I want people to think about it. One out of every three dollars they pay in taxes goes to police. I mean, people have no idea how much money it is. No matter how noble their original intentions might have been, if only police unions could see that among all the things they are today is the result of a well-orchestrated campaign tactic, a campaign tactic with its biggest roots growing out of explicit racism. And now police unions disproportionately use much-needed tax dollars from communities who need them the most. You know, it's sort of a straw man to say it's the union. You know, government is just a place where we come together as people and decide who we're going to be. And um, largely, it's a place in where white people have come together to decide who we're going to be. And we have decided that the way policing operates and functions and the way police unions operate and function is uh, serving us and that we would uh, we're OK with having it continue that way. The police work for the people. It is the people who will have to drive home that this is what we want and we will not stand for anything else. If as a whole and as a community, all of us, especially white people who have not enjoined this effort very heavily or very widely, uh, were to decide that the way these unions protect bad behavior and not just protect workers, if we decided that shouldn't stand, it wouldn't stand. It wouldn't stand because we wouldn't have built it this way. America fell for the Southern strategy and the suburban strategy. The propaganda spun from those strategies allowed for a war on drugs, a 90s crime bill, and out-of-control police unions. The Supreme Court has played a role, too, providing extreme legal shielding for officers. And in the meantime, Congress has been more than happy to provide all the funding, military gear, and dog whistle rhetoric about black people and public safety needed to fortify this system. What do we do with that information is the question. Like, okay, what are we going to do now that everyone can see what people have been talking about all along? And as a country, we are being invited, and as white people especially, right now we are being invited to answer the question, what can we do to make it right? So let's decide that the status quo shouldn't stand. There's no shortage of possible solutions when it comes to reforming policing in America. There are solutions available at every layer of government and every tier of society. I think that we are capable of having the change occur. What it will take to have it happen, we have seen in action. But if it's not sustained, it won't happen. That's how deeply entrenched police culture is. If you, we're talking about decades of structural racism and that's reinforced and maintained through public policy, we have to put in place a public policy landscape to address what we all know are the social ills in this, in this nation. So we have to right-size that in this moment of peaceful protest and move people to the polling place so we can put in place a set of policy makers who then implement a set of public policies that we can hold people accountable and put the necessary guardrails in place. To see the solutions, all you have to do is imagine what success could look like. 
there's so much we can do better. And, and what we could do better is all the examples are all around us. The biggest success would be safety in all neighborhoods and no one is scared to call the police. That's the success. I think it would also be a sign of success if whatever law enforcement looks like in the future, the people who are in it look like the neighborhoods they're representing and the city that they come from. And that doesn't mean no white officers, but it means a lot more officers of color and indigenous officers. What if, to start with, we had more diverse police forces? What if they lived in the places they policed? What if those diverse police forces were properly trained to police in today's America? When we think about community policing, community policing isn't an officer throwing a football or dribbling a basketball with a kid. Community policing is an experience. It's people living in the neighborhood, talking to their neighbors who are their neighbors, going to to a, a place of worship in their neighborhood, going to a grocery store, going to a gym, sending their kids to local schools. Communities where the law enforcement officers actually live in or come from the, the neighborhood that they're patrolling. There's a lot of level of familiarity. What if there wasn't a question as to what correct police behavior is? What if there was a national standard for conduct? So when we talk about bad apples like Derek Chauvin, he's not simply a bad apple that just fell off of a tree that is all of a sudden just bad. He has to come from somewhere. It's about an organizational system that allows for systemic racism to come into play. Training and policy are only as good as the officers who decide to to adhere to those things. When you look at policing, there has to be a a floor, a standard that's across the board, a standard that police will be held accountable, federal standard across the board, that there's an accreditation process We should have a national use of force standard so that there's no flexibility, that all officers and law enforcement officials in the country can know what it is that is expected of them. What if we started taking names, keeping a national database of bad apples? The murderer of Tamir Rice was a a police officer, and he had disciplinary issues there. That's why he left. But when he moved over to the, the neighboring community agency, they couldn't access his record. So you have officers who are moving agency to agency, although they may have disciplinary actions against them. We need a national database of police officers who have engaged in police misconduct. And we need to ensure that they should never be able to work again. It could be argued that Tamir Rice and George Floyd would would both be alive if we had this list previously. I don't know about anyone else. But I want my tax money used for education. I want my tax money used for social services. I want my tax money used to pick trash and clean up snow. I don't want my tax money used for a bad police officer to kill someone. And what if we rethought what we ask police to do in the first place? Law enforcement agencies are forced to play roles that they're not trained to play. That if individuals are living in communities of trauma, uh, that's, that's something that you assign to a social worker, not a police law enforcement agency. If individuals are suffering from mental Ill- illness, you shouldn't be called the police. They need more mental health providers and, 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 and institutions to help people. And so the shifting of the resources is to focus on the things that we know work. We need to rethink how we've set up all of our systems if we're going to th- rethink how we set up policing, meaning 
if it's really going to be about public safety, then it has to be about public safety and not just law enforcement. But this moment seems to be slipping away. This morning, outrage over this distressing video that shows a black man shot multiple times by police as he tried to get into his vehicle. After three nights of violent and deadly protests, additional National Guardsmen were called in. These conversations about defunding, uh, about uh, dismantling, about abolishment, those conversations are real. And it's making a lot of people nervous. But the people have a right to have those conversations and to act on it. You know, we're in the middle of a public health crisis, a, glo a global pandemic, and we lack a federal response. And this administration, this president, is fanning the flames of division and tribalism. I am the law and order candidate. You can hear the Republicans' Southern strategy now. Sometimes years go by where it's just a whisper. But now, it's a shout. President Trump started building a wall under the guise of keeping drugs out of the country and has called for harsher sentences for drug law violations and the death penalty for people who sell drugs. But President Trump's actions shouldn't surprise you. He's just the symptom of a bigger political system that has weaponized the politics of fear and stoked racial resentments on both sides of the aisle for a long time. I'd like to punch him in the face, I'll tell you. And when you see these towns, and when you see these thugs being thrown into the back of a paddy wagon, I said, please don't be too nice. We will never allow an angry mob to tear down our statues, erase our history, indoctrinate our children, or trample on our freedoms. We will make America safe again, and we will make America great again. Thank you. Thank you. We cannot, as a nation, fall into this level of tribalism because none of us are safe. The suburban strategy has not been dismantled either. They want to walk the halls of Congress. They want to take over. They want power. They want to abolish the suburbs altogether. These are the policies that are coming to a neighborhood near you. So make no mistake, no matter where you live, your family will not be safe in the radical Democrats' America. What many people, uh, white people, retreat to is a desire for comfort and not for change. So we will do things that make us feel better, but that don't actually move the needle for people of color uh, in any meaningful way at all. The long-term implications are grave. I mean, even if people get past those incidents, they oftentimes die a slow death. It's a theory we call weathering, which is the impact that society has on people's lives. And for black people, weathering has a detrimental impact that impacts long-term health. It doesn't matter if the people who hold the positions in those systems don't have any racial animus in our hearts. If the system isn't designed to get a different outcome, it will keep getting the same outcome. Do not mistake the current climate for a hopeless one. These problems, like so many others, are solvable. The solutions to all of the ways our policing was made to fail simply come down to all of us. Things like community policing standards, criminal justice reform, and ending fear-based racial politics, they all come down to political and personal will. The real answer to all of this is demanding change beyond George Floyd. We have to demand that our leaders know the history of policing in this country. 
Leaders who recognize the deep need for change and then will work toward that change for all of us. Because that is what America should be and moving that energy to the ballot box so that they can vote a value proposition. You know, that Black Lives Matter uh, and not to diminish anyone else's lives, but until we are forced this country to uphold the promise that's in the Constitution that all men and women are created equally and endowed with certain indelible rights, we would never be the, the country that we are supposed to be. The promise that's given to all of us will never be realized. But at the end of the day, we can't just talk about the problems. We have to go to the solutions. We're done dying. Let's talk about how we're going to breathe life into this democracy because we have both the agency and power to do something about it. Made to Fail is produced by The Hub Project, Goat Rodeo, and the Roosevelt Institute. From The Hub Project, executive producer is Laura Hatalski. Producers are Sasha Stone, Zach Price, Sophie Elliott, and Dan Crawford. Arkady Gurney is executive director. From the Goat Rodeo team, executive producer is Megan Nadolsky. Producers are Shar Dreyer and Zachary Frank. Ian Enright is the chief executive officer. From the Roosevelt Institute, our senior producer is Steph Sterling. Our host, that's me, is Elliot Williams. This episode was written by Megan Nadolsky, Ian Edright, me, and the good people at The Hub Project. Thanks to Mayor Betsy Hodges, President Derek Johnson, Sonia Pruitt, and Dr. Rashawn Ray for sharing their experiences and expertise. To learn more about how conservative policies have set up millions of Americans for failure in the face of a crisis, visit madetofail.org. Subscribe to Made to Fail on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app so you don't miss the next episode. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating or review and share it with your friends. And if you want to continue the conversation online, find us on social media. We're at Made to Fail Pod on Twitter, Made to Fail on Facebook, and Made to Fail Podcast on Instagram. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Goat Rodeo. Keep an ear out for us.